Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Maya Dunitz. Dunitz is currently in residence at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha in preparation for a 13,000-square-foot exhibition that will be curated by Rachel Adams and that will open on May 5th, 2022. Dunitz's exhibition will foreground the physicality of sound through a series of installations, including a 17-piano installation that will build on her 2021 work, Five Chilling Mammoths, and on 2016's Trembling Piano. Our segment with Dunitz was taped before a live audience at the Bemis Center's low-end venue. Dunitz is a composer, performer, and sound artist whose work investigates the nexus of music, visual art, performance, and technologies. She's created exhibitions, site-specific sound installations, and performances for the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, the Reykjavik Arts Festival, the Frac Provence Alpes Côte d'Azur, the Pompidou Center, and the Botanical Gardens in Jerusalem. On the second segment, Jordana Mendelssohn joins me on the occasion of Calder Picasso at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. But first, some sound from a recent Maya Dunitz installation, and then Maya Dunitz herself after the break. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens's fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents MFAH plus U equals a dynamic duo. Discover the duality within the MFAH's major lineup of fall exhibitions and find your duo. Explore the parallels between two of the foremost figures in 20th century art in Calder Picasso. Witness the first exhibition devoted to Georgia O'Keeffe's work with a camera in Georgia O'Keeffe Photographer. Unravel juxtapositions in the legacy of the African diaspora through historical and contemporary works in Afro-Atlantic histories. See some of the most significant paintings from the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist movements in Incomparable Impressionism from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Plan your visit at mfah.org slash dynamic duo. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, two special single gallery presentations by Brian Youngen and David Hart. Drawn from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, Brian Youngen's installation, The Evening Redness in the West, addresses the legacy of colonialism and violence in Hollywood Westerns. Part of the museum's signature Hammer Project series, David Hart's installation, The Histories, Old Black Joe, centered on jacquard-woven tapestries and a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by the legendary musician Van Dyke Parks, examines the relationships between culture, geography, and colonial histories in the Americas in the 19th century. Opening this weekend at the Hammer, Brian Youngen closes October 31st, and David Hart closes January 2nd. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Welcome back. Before my conversation with Maya Dunitz, we wanted to share with you a track from her new album, Five Chilling Mammoths, which was released earlier this year. It was recorded in an exhibition at the FRAC in Marseille.
Maya Dunitz. Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hi, Tyler. We're in a Kunst Hall, and you're in residence to create an exhibition for here. So I want to focus a bit on your creation of objects and installations and physical experiences that, that, that visitors have. So let's start in, in, in the simplest, most basic place, and that is that you join sound to objects. This is something that's interested a lot of sound artists and artists who work with sound for a long time now. But what about joining sound to objects and object presentation first interested you? I don't think I'm joining the sound to the objects. I think I'm finding the sound within them, maybe. I mean, in different ways. They, all these objects have a frequency, and it includes uh, you know, how they are, where they've been, where they are now. <laughs> Was there an object or another artist whose address of sound and object together interested you or provided to you a pathway from a more traditional music background to mm. a, a Kunsthalle slash museum I love it. I love that you just practically want to like place it in the... You know, in the timeline of uh, people who've been doing. Well, I'm a history I, nerd. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> great. Because, you know, I'm a really bad name dropper, so I'm <laughs> not. A more awkward silence type of. Uh, <laughs> so, but I, there is a name that comes to mind. I can say it has inspired my work ever since I met his, and he's alive. We were even going to try to to do a, an exhibition together at some point. But uh, his name is Tetsuya Umeda, and he's a, a Japanese artist and sound person and musician. So what in his work hmm. landed with you? Oh, many things. It, I like the, the groove of it. And also the way he, you know, he goes into places and he kind of uses what he finds. It's very site-specific, very much exploring the environment that he's in. And, and super attentive, super sensitive to the details of of uh, sound and understanding that sound is, you know, is movement in space. And uh, and of course, uh, Samuel Beckett, uh, in the way he, you know, uses syntax from other worlds in his theater or something that is beyond theater now. You know? Yeah, and, and I guess the objects emerged. Sometimes I had a sound, I heard a... A sound I didn't that didn't exist. The the instruments to produce it didn't exist, and then you have to kind of build the instrument that becomes part of the composition ah. itself. So some um, some of your interest in objects was that you could make them. Yeah, of course. I like to <laughs> just take things and connect them or take them apart and do all sorts of turn them upside down, basically play them the wrong way <laughs> or the way not not the way you would be expected to play them. You come from a kind of traditional music background. Like I notice on your on your CV, your you know, like every artist on their CV lists, you know, their education and all that. Mm -hmm. And and you start with your study of piano when you were five. Yes, definitely with Janina. Yeah, yeah. So uh, piano and flute, and we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but what was it that took you from kind of a traditional? piano, flute, music background, a, a more traditional music education to being interested in spaces and projects that you can do in spaces like this. I guess I never stopped. 
right? The kids do this stuff all the time. <laughs> Build <laughs> sound installations. <laughs> noise, noise music. But <laughs> going back to your question, when I was around 10 years old, I had a composition teacher, and her name was Karen Rosenbaum. And she's a wonderful composer, and also kind of a mind opener. When I have a problem, I go to her, and she does one of her playground exercises or compositions on me. I perform one of them, and then mm. I, a window appears, or kind of a solution starts to seem possible. And when I was 10 years old, I went to study composition with her. I just met her accidentally in, in the area where we were living. And I asked her about the piano, how, it's, how it works. I didn't remember this. She reminded me of uh, this moment. Uh, and then I flashed back to this moment. She said, she was like, okay, well, let's find out. And we started to unscrew things and take everything apart until the piano was just in parts. And then her mother came in. She was 21 at the time. I was 10. <laughs> her mother was horrified <laughs> what we were doing to the piano. So that happened quite early. And another thing was uh, Jimi Hendrix, how he can bend or all these notes that are missing between C and C sharp. And then learning about the history of piano and understanding that it's based on, on a lie, on some compromise. And the notes in the, in the scale are not exactly what they would be on another, in, in true life or in, in nature. It's kind of a machine. It's a politically correct machine. <laughs> it's like uh, it makes every note be able to communicate with another note, but without the extreme gestures of a note. Well, it's fascinating <laughs> about taking apart <laughs> pianos. I mean, did you learn something about how pianos work from that that you hadn't known from Oh, playing? definitely. A lot of things. And I hope I will play some of them <laughs> tonight, even though I'm playing quite conventionally in this evening's recital, but later on, I mean, right? And, and much later evening. on, because yes, much later for, on. The, for the May show, yes. pianos are a big part of it. You've made a number of works, object-driven works with pianos, and you quite often subvert them, break them, make them make different sounds that they weren't maybe constructed to make you kind of rewire them kind of literally. <laughs> and if I were a psychologist, I might be tempted to note you have a particular relationship with the instrument and that it must die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were stages like that. <laughs> Definitely. It's a very complicated uh, relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so how would you describe that relationship? <laughs> <laughs> You're right, though. No, I love this description. Do you have my, Because you, to, you came in today and actually heard them in action. Yeah, for, I'd only for I mean, everyone else. Yeah, so so you've done a number of piano installations over the years, like five chilling mammoths, and you know they've been with one piano or five pianos, and anybody can see those on on YouTube and Vimeo and on your website. Well, you can see some things. You can see a video yeah. of it, but you can't really be in it. You can't understand what it's about from a video. No, that's true. It's so physical. But we will still link to your website from manpodcast.com okay, so okay, that people thank can you. see them I, if, yeah, uh, okay. if they no, want you can, to. You can watch it and remember you're not really watching the piece. You're watching it. So, <laughs> so is there something, is there anything kind of autobiographical in your willingness to take apart pianos and, and stick a speaker or amplifier in them with the most remarkable name ever? This device, the brand name is Butt Kicker. Yeah, 
because uh, sometimes they also put it in the chairs in cars when people they want to uh. hear really wow the bass is so so loud my butt's moving well actually there is a butt kicker in there and it it moves in the frequency of the music so in your tre- in your in your treatment <laughs> of pianos is there a little bit of a love hate relationship with the instrument oh well there used to be some love and hate right now we're totally in love it's like <laughs> now i'm i'm 40 and there's a definitely a little paradise we've come to, a honeymoon. So, uh, and, and also what I'm doing to them with the butt kickers, I feel like, I mean, these pianos were all 17 of them that the, the amazing people of Bemis has been collecting in the, over the last year and a half. They were abandoned. People wanted them out. They're like, oh, you, I can't tune this anymore. Let's, let's just throw them away. And I took all this waste, and for me, it's uh, wow, it's it's gold. I have this early memory of uh, pianos people threw away on the street in south mm-hmm. of uh, Tel Aviv in Shkunat Shapira, which is quite a mixed neighborhood. There's all these people from the Philippines, from Thailand, and Palestinians, and really old religious Orthodox Jews, and a mix. Now there's a lot of refugees there, and and there was this piano, and everyone was throwing things at it and, and playing with it in the middle of the street. It's such, it has a great resonance also when it's after, it's in its afterlife. So I've always loved those. And then there was a butt kicker around for another piece I was working on uh, together with the two collaborators, uh, Alona Rodet and Ariela Spell. And we did a kind of a theater music visual art piece and that involved butt kickers and there was a piano laying around. It started from a very playful search. <laughs> so let's give people a little preview of what they will see when these 17 pianos are installed here in May. I don't know if all 17 have, are, are attached to a butt kicker. Are all 17? Yeah, 17 each of are? them has their butt kicker that just makes them vibrate. And then people will walk into a gallery space and they will see oh. these 17 pianos, some of which have these remarkable markings of their history and making, like Boston piano makers that are boasting of having won medals in the 1867 World's Fair in Paris, and Chicago piano manufacturers boasting of having won 50 medals around the world. And these are mm-hmm. inside the piano. You know, these aren't on on like the lid that covers the keys. These are you have they're to get tattooed. inside. Yeah, they're tattooed. You have to get inside the instrument yeah. to see this stuff. They're and, totally tattooed, actually, if you think about it. Because yeah. they won, and then, then someone imprinted that thing on, on the metal. So seven, cool. 17 of these <laughs> butt kickers hooked up to them. How will they be installed in the gallery? And can you give us kind of a preview of what the auditory and physical experience of being... Ooh, maybe you don't want to tell yours? That's, that's fun for me. To, and you, get, yeah. you have to like, explain. How was it for you today? Tell well, me. I had, you know, I went upstairs after and pulled some stuff. So I, I, I pulled a quote of your. Well, my first thought was sometimes I felt like I was being hunted Ooh. by sound in different parts of the room. So, so what Maya does is there's a computer program yes. that, that activates the seventeen the butt kickers on the seventeen pianos, and there's a software and a sequence and a. Mm-hmm. 
not an order, order sounds too strict, but a, no, a narrative it, maybe. Totally. That, that unfolds. Choreography. Or yes, that's a good <laughs> word because I, sometimes I felt hunted and then sometimes yeah. I would hear a sound 30 feet away that a piano was making over there and all of a sudden I would go from being hunted to pursuing to try Ooh. to find that sound. Yes. <laughs> and so I had two thoughts. Okay. I remembered a, something you said in an interview, I think earlier this year, where when you installed five chilling mammoths in Tel Aviv? Yeah, that was the better version, getting ready for this. Yeah. This is a project Rachel and I have been working on for five, six years. So five chilling mammoths was a very important landmark in the process. So, so you said about that, what would happen if they, the pianos, were set free in the wild? Mm. What other sounds do they hold within beyond the measured familiar gestures which have come to define them? Yes. And I sort of felt like I was on safari in the middle of these pianos. Right, you got it right. This, this, is, a <laughs> this is a quote from, uh, from Ran uh, Kasmi-Ilan, uh, his, his essay about the fab-chilling mammoths that we exhibited in his gallery uh, back in Israel. And, and back then there were just five. So, uh, it, it was still very animalistic. And now we have these 17 and they're a herd. For me, they're just a herd of these ancient, roaring, juicy, I smelly kept thinking beasts. of elephants, yeah. Yeah, you, you felt elephants, totally. And also because their trunk and the way they produce sound is so... Also uses the space, right? And they, they have to... Their roar has to travel far. What do you call that? The call of the elephant. It's not a roar. They, it has a name? Even yeah, if yeah. I knew the name, what the sound you just made is so much better okay. than the name. Okay. I'm not go even going to try to. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, you know, was thinking if, if feeling pursued and hunting simultaneously is a little bit of a metaphor for how you think of what you do with pianos, because you're not just playing them, mm -hmm. you're pursuing them. Yeah, I mean, there is, there is the relationship to the piano that is very very complicated and, and deep and we can spend <laughs> hours talking about that and and in this piece there there was also that I'm using them to kind of explore another idea that has to do with the this is the nerdy part okay so the the square root of two which is an irrational number that brought a lot of music that's kind of what's creating their their sound Oh, it's it's really magical how they're they're reacting to the thing, and uh, and I didn't stop yet to think about like the meaning of me doing this to the piano the way you're asking me mm. tonight. I have to think about it, so uh, because that's a serious question. <laughs> no, because I've been I I play them prepared a lot. Less tonight, maybe a little bit, but uh, like inside and like, I've performed many pieces uh, by contemporary composers as a pianist right. that involve these extended techniques and, and, I, and I write for them as a composer and, and it's just an awesome resonance machine <laughs> I mean, it's, and it's amazing the way it's built and these hundreds of tons stretched like that uh, over the, the frame, the steel frame and this wood that they, they wetted and, and carved to make it resonate more it's it's all it's, it's magnificent work i adore the animal itself <laughs> you're, you're, you're describing the physicality of a, a piano and one of both the characteristics of 
of the preview of the 17 piano work I saw today and one of the characteristics of a lot of your other work, at least for me, is that you so very often make sound physical and material. So mm -hmm. with the 17 piano piece, one of the ways you do that is by encouraging people to touch the pianos or sit on the pianos. How do you hope that conveys the physicality of what you're doing? Well, there's another thing that I was waiting until we meet here on this, this stage to talk about when, we, you know, when I played you the piece today. I wanted to ask you if you heard these kind of Woo, 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 woo. these kind of rhythms inside, you know, there's these drones, these kind of roars, and then there are all these rhythms, right? So did you hear those? Yes, because it's not, I, you know, I, I, maybe a fault in my description of, of I, I don't want to make it sound like only one piano is making noise at a time. Yeah, but that, yeah, that's there, one part of it. Yeah, there are many pianos making Mm -hmm. uh, many parts of the of the work no, sound at a time. There's no roaring together. Yeah, really. and 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 sometimes it appears they come close to being in harmony, and sometimes not at all. Mm -hmm. And so the ear and the mind work together to think they recognize when that moment of harmony or harmonizing. I'm sure I'm using the wrong words. Are getting closer, and it never quite gets at least when I was in the room today, it never quite got there, it would, but it would get close and then it would fall away and then it would come close again. And that's part of why I use the word mm. narrative, I think. It's lovely that you just described that because I don't know if that's actually what's happening physically in what I'm sending to them, but that taps into some other idea that's going on in this, in this herd, which is they're in constant search of this middle point between them. So they're all this herd and they're hanging out together. And they each in the herd, they have different functions. So I'm not, I'm, I'm a mother and I'm a lover and a sister and a daughter and, and, and a friend of, and, and each of these mayas, each of these selves of mine require different behavior, right? Or, and, and now I'm in a, with my herd grazing in our natural habitat all together. And how do I find a, a point of, That, that can have all of these frequencies of me in, in it. So I'm kind of in constant... So that's what they're all doing. They're kind of positioning themselves in relation to the others. And they're in search of this, this uh, middle point, this perfect balance between them. And the beautiful thing about it is that it's, it keeps moving, also does, in real life, right? It does, it does kind of feel like they're talking to each other. You know, it's like that moment in Jurassic Park where... <laughs> where I don't remember which character, but they realize that they're talking to each other through <laughs> chirping or something. And I, I did have that. I had a flashback to like the kitchen the scene Jurassic in Jurassic Park. Park. Oh, I'm totally taking that as a compliment. <laughs> yes, really. And it's, it's great that you can hear with your body. You were talking about inviting people to sit on them and to listen with it. I mean, that's how I hear things. So I'm like very close, very sensually, I guess, and very, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, everything that's been, I've been messing with brings the use, using, is using sound in its kind of original purpose in the world, which is to map our surrounding and where we are in relation to it, is to connect to everything that's going on and to be, to, Uh, transfer vibrations from one body to another. 
Let's talk about a couple pieces in which you do that. One from 2016 is called Sound Requires a Medium. I'm going to try and describe how the piece works. <laughs> a viewer, viewer? Yeah, okay. A viewer, you know, a participant in receiving the artwork essentially hears, air quote, hears the piece through their mouth. Through their teeth. Through their teeth. So through their teeth to their bone. I, I guess with that in mind, could you kind of de uh, quickly describe how the piece is experienced and then we can talk about the physical experience of yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, or, this is originally, um, uh, I, I saw this in, a, in a, actually in some science show somewhere with the family. And it was something that Thomas Edison invented to explain what sound is. And it, it, it was basically, it's a metal rod and you... You bite it, and then you hear from your teeth to your skull. So it bypasses this part of like going in, in, through your ear into these little hairs that move. It just goes directly into the bone. Huh. So, and there are also hearing aids that use this technology today. You know, things like braces you put that are conductive. That, wow. That vibrate, the, enhance the volume of what's going on. And, and and for and it was it was a great way of uh, demonstrating how sound is basically vibrations from one uh, body to another it can be gas liquid or solid right it can go through air and it can pass through metal also and go directly to your bone instead of going through the air into your ear and then to your bone so when someone bites on the metal rod yes they hear a sound from my mouth to their mouth, a really intimate vocal piece. Can they identify it as such, or is, do they know that's... Yeah, they yeah, can? it's very vocal. Mm. It's like a lovely, flowery little song with some also. So <laughs> is that a good example of a work in which the physicality of sound is foregrounded about as much as you can possibly foreground it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. I mean, the fact that it, it becomes an example of anything, you, you can, yeah, you can stick a lot of conclusions to it. But what it originally was, me stumbling upon this object, loving what it does, and thinking, mm -hmm. ooh, I could compose a song from my mouth to someone else's mouth that wouldn't be heard unless you bite it. So you have to bite the music to hear it. And I just thought it's, it's a lovely idea. And I wrote a song for that kind of a machine, and then I built that machine to make that song. And then you went into the, the exhibition and, and all the other pieces in the exhibition, there was Ticket, this kind of cloud with 11,000 earphones, and there was the first vibrating piano that was vibrating a, a piece for double bass that I, I yep. wrote, recorded, and played through that, and, and all sorts of bird whistle and things that were kind of making sound in the space. And that piece was also there, but you would only hear it if you were biting on the object. So. With, of course, with the straw, you can. Uh, it was very sterile. And I want to come back to. <laughs> I want to come back to thicket in a moment because it's really awesome. But you mentioned Thanks. bird whistle, which is <laughs> so with 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 the piano piece or sound requires a medium or some of your other pieces. You kind of have to figure out how the sound is being made. Mm -hmm. But bird whistle True. is how the sound is made if you will. <laughs> so you construct how sound is made and you show us how you do it. So maybe first, could you describe how you do that? We'll have images of it on manpodcast.com, of course. But why was showing us how the sound was made important? Okay, well, that bird whistle came to life from 
I, I sat in the, the CCA in Tel Aviv, in the gallery where I was invited to do an exhibition in, and I realized that there are places in the lower gallery that you, are, you can hear things happening on the floor above, but you can't see them. And then when you go to the second floor, you see them for the first time. So I, I, I started to play with this gap. Downstairs, there are other things happening, and then I thought, oh, and then you hear the sound of a magnificent bird. And when you go upstairs, you realize it's kind of this futuristic machine. Uh, kind of, there's a bird whistle and a bellow stuck to its buttocks, and a weight that falls on the bellow that is connected to a rope that is, goes to, to this kind of wheel, and the wheel is just wood with a little thingy. It's all very, very simple. Very mechanical, there's nothing uh, digital in there. And it's like all of this, it, it kind of reminded me, it's a quote of a harp. Hmm. The harp for me is a really funny instrument. It's like so heavy, and you carry it around, and then it goes, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> I always laugh at this, this kind of, so yeah, so that's how the bird whistle came to life. And, and then I found the, the right length of a turn for the thing to fall again, that you would forget that it ever chirped, and then it would chirp, and like very precise kind of length of, of a turn, right? And from the chirp until the, the weight uh, goes back up and then falls again. It was like uh, two minutes and something, which was exactly how much you needed to forget that it happened before <laughs> and let it surprise you again. So it's a very surprising moment of hearing this bird all of a sudden feels like a piece you made <laughs> to show how sound is constructed, to kind of show how sound physically or mechanically works. Yeah, and, and it kind of happened through the process. It also shows that. I mean, I don't, didn't have that particularly in mind as the object of the piece, but it, it, it's a kind of a byproduct of this playful game. It's like the... You have this cumbersome is the word, like something that, you know, it's this very heavy, uh, out-of-date machine and for this tiny little bird sound. And it's kind of also how we, we use nature. It's true. <laughs> it's a very awkward <laughs> way <laughs> these days. Or connect with it, right? We're about, we said connection is the secret word of tonight so yeah you mentioned thicket a moment ago another theme i think that comes up in the work a lot is is chaos <laughs> and how chaotic sound can be deconstructed or narrowed down to something that's readily identifiable so i'm thinking of works like chord from 2007 which is what is it 40 radios 60, 40? I don't, I don't remember how many there were. I think it's 40 or 60 radios on a board, and from a yeah. distance, there's a cacophony of sound, but as you move closer to the board, you can isolate <laughs> sounds. And another work that has chaos as a part of it is Eroica from, from 2010, and then Thicket, the year of which I failed to write down. And, and Thicket is this mass of cloud-like form of um, headphone wires and e earphones at, at the end. And, I mean, massive. I mean, what is it, 10,000 headphones or something? Yeah, 11,000. 11,000 headphones, it's huge. 10 and it grew, it, you know, as plants do. And so sound, of course, comes through 
these these, yes. these little earbuds. So was chaos an interest of yours, and then was creating works in which chaos could be dissolved and you could find something within chaos hmm. a motivating interest? I, I see your point. I see the connection between me and chaos. I'm sure David, my husband, could also <laughs> agree on that. For sure. Sorry. Sorry about that. But actually, in these installations, it's very organized happening, in my opinion. Especially something like Thicket that involves 11,000 earphones. You have to be super organized to create that chaos. But to look at the physical object, it looks yeah. like... Yes. Just a, bun a bundle, a, a rasta of, of bundle of giant cloud yeah. of wires. Yeah, that's true. And it also, it, it, it started, it, it, we were doing a choir piece with headphones, about 25 people, and then ended up with this plastic bag with a mess like that. <laughs> that was uh, something that happened in real life. It, it was a small bag. It wasn't eight meters and, and six, but yeah, so there was a bit of, of chaos that sparked the plan, the planned mess. And there's a, there are 20 channels there. And it's, there's a whole choreography of sound. And, and playing mostly with white noise, which is also... Uh, Chaos. Very wild, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you install Thicket... So, so a lot of your works involve software and, and computers and, and the digital composition and production of sound. And often, not always, but often you don't try to hide... The physicality of that you know we see that equipment in or near the gallery why do you choose to make like you know lots of artists who, who, who do things with sound hide the guts behind drywall but you don't so why do you choose to share with us the electronics that help well first regarding the use of the massive use of electronics in my work that is happening thanks to amazing collaborators because I'm not a programmer, and I'm not, uh, I don't know how to do these things. And I come up with, I hear something about a number, I'm like, oh, that's so cool, let's build a machine that does that. And I come, and <laughs> like, I want to do this, and it's a square root of two, and it comes from there. And, and then my friend, Daniel Meir, who is a sound designer and a genius programmer, he tells me, oh, I, I don't know what, I don't understand, and I don't know how to do that. And then we end up doing it uh, somehow. Uh, yeah, so we've been working on these kind of machines for a long time, and there's there's a bunch of, of like I always go and work, find interesting partners that know things that I don't know that can can kind of stretch the the toolbox and to into new places. For so for this exhibition, I'm uh, learning a little bit of uh, Arduino programming, uh, but I, I just know how to. Do, you know, copy paste and and use the thing or explain what went wrong with it. I mean, I, I can't really create. It's they're really magnificent machines. Another amazing collaborator on the electronic side of things is my dear husband David Lemoine, who has been building uh, very crazy things, uh, machines of all sorts for different different purposes in the last decade in Paris, and uh, he's here working with me uh, at Bemis on all these things. He's worked with Arduinos before, and uh, he, he kind of made very casually made everything work in these the past two two months here in the electronic 
side of things. So it's really thanks to, to these two amazing people that I can do it because I don't, I'm not trained in that uh, side of things. I always, I'm always next to it. I went, I studied composition next to the sonology department. And I got to play with these patching walls yeah, and, and with the magnetic tapes and all sorts of, uh, more like, more the, the things you do with your hands. So magnet, magnetic tapes and, but also very brute, uh, simple kind of use that I do. I, you know, we build these machines and then I record on them for hours and hours and, and start to compose from there. And they're always exploring a mathematical idea, but from my very childish point of uh, perceiving them, you know, I don't, I'm not a mathematician or a, or a scientist. But I have no, I, I decide supposedly as if there is a decision process there to show the guts in any, almost any occasion. And who, whoever knows me a little bit knows this. I, it's like, I'm trying to to tame this part, right? To be a little, but even you know, it's uh, how can you not? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's the only way <laughs> somehow for me lately. I mean, maybe it will change. Yeah, sometimes I, I manage to not to spill all the guts there, <laughs> there's, but there's... yeah, the electronic uh, happens in the same style. And also for me, it's really interesting to see, and it's a part. It's a beautiful part of the. The piece. And always when there are aesthetic questions, the conclusion is like, okay, what's the practical solution from the options that I have, that I like? You and there, there, there have been a lot of artists who work with sound in recent years who have chosen to foreground the guts. Like I think of, like when I think of Thicket, I think of Bill Fontana's work mm -hmm. and how, so Bill Fontana's work often includes these very different form than Thicket takes. But 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 these labyrinthian interlocking wires and cords, often in bright colors, that he foregrounds. So it's something that lots of I don't know about lots, but many sound artists are also interested in now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the trend, right? It's the style of the time. <laughs> no, um, it's not always the case. Actually, there are pieces where there things are. are hidden. It's very. Sometimes well you, thought, sometimes what you just is stick out, your, what is in. Like, sometimes you just stick your wall, your ear to a wall. Yeah, exactly. The, or, or even with the sound requires a medium. That's right. It was very nicely soldered into the table, and like, and and then you don't see what's happening after. You know, the, yeah. There is some thought of it's not all just spilled <laughs> in front of uh, anymore. Something we've talked about in a lot of these works is how you make your audience do something. Ooh, good question. You make them follow sound through an installation, or you make them bite a steel or metal rod. In a work like air sculpture, you're asking the audience, actually, I don't know, asking isn't quite, quite the right word. Air, air sculpture is a, a work where you walk into kind of a dark room, and Maya uses sound to guide your brain's perception of space and to help you kind of construct it. I guess this is all a long way of asking is making your audience do something rather than just sit in an orchestral hall. If, if that's a motivating factor for you, because it seems like for, you know, if you, if, if you go hear the symphony for a night, you sit on your butt and you listen to the symphony. Mm -hmm. And when you're working in museum and Kunsthall spaces, 
it seems to me like you're often finding every way you can to physically activate people. Mm -hmm. Well, generally, since the beginning of this conversation until now, I say yes to all of these uh -huh. understandings of yours. Yes. And this one is another one. I just wouldn't, I can't say that myself, but you're totally right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yes. And I, it's like I, 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 yeah, it's very active listening that I'm inviting the visitors to be engaged in. And I also feel the people in, in the space, like in concerts and things, I feel we are all in a ceremony together, right? Mm -hmm. And the people there affect the, the music very much. And, and of course, even more in improv, which I do a lot, like free improvisation sessions that have a completely different set of, of uh, values, okay, of how of the momentum in which you're in. Yeah, so I, I can feel the, the ears of people. And uh, for me, that's, yeah, it's a very active mutual experience, exchange of ideas even. I, I, I think that probably in free improv, uh, even like thoughts uh, of people that are in the room enter the, and change the music, affect it. It's very physical for me. Do you think of sound works and installations you do for gallery spaces as having any relationship whatsoever to work you might compose for or perform in a more traditional mm. concert setting? Oh, yes, that brings me back to something I, was, I, I thought of mentioning before, which is you were talking about getting people to do things a certain way when they come to the exhibition. Well, in, a, in an exhibition, I have very limited control over how people consume <laughs> this, this work, right? They can come in for two minutes and go out. They can talk in the meantime. They, they choose how long the experience will be for themselves and in, in what tempo to, to go through it. And um, have to let go of a lot of control or like to treat the, the whole event in a, even one, one generation removed, like from further up somehow, uh, like in, in the eternal pulse of the situation, <laughs> rather than like, you know, the details of, they'll go from this point to that point. And on the other hand, it, it leaves a lot of uh, space for surprises, for playfulness, for, uh, to, build systems that, and I don't reveal all the, the ways that, you know, the things you can, it's like when you played uh, Super Mario and there were these secret places where you jump <laughs> and the mushroom appears and, uh, yeah. you know, so, and then once you learn how to play, you, you know, so there's like a whole layer of, of that, that kind of happening. That if you have the, the time to just go and try to play around and jump here and there, you'll find them. I you did, you did I it today. That. I saw you, you touching them and like uh, oh yeah no i was i was you know like like with the pianos because they're really big mm -hmm. you know they're like four and a half feet tall you feel like and you're hearing sound come from the other side of them and you're feeling vibration come from the other side of them which motivates you to go stick your head around the corner kind of just like what you were describing with like the super mario brothers analogy is like a really good one. Oh yeah we were talking about those beatings that that you hear in between them, remember? Yeah. And we didn't finish that point that, that those don't, I don't send them to the pianos. They're appearing through the connection between them in the space. 
that's like their their sounds meeting creates these these heartbeats inside or uh, but that happens in your in our brain that's not happening in the space because this this is due to the way our our perception works to save calories right to to make oh. yeah so you hear if if you have these two frequencies that are very close to each other so what your and your brain is understanding okay this is a drone it's going to go on for a while it will remember them as the the common denominator of the two, right? That's how you say the I know what you mean, even if and I, then, yeah, that's not the right phrase. And then yeah. we'll also remember the, the difference between them. And that would be easier for the brain to remember that as like one high number and one, one low number rather than two high numbers, something like that. So have you um, studied how our brains process sound? I'm always uh, curious about that. I mean, never-ending studying hmm. process. And yeah, there is some fascination about that there's some psychoacoustic tricks being explored inside the last kind of thematic area i wanted to ask about was seems to me that your work sometimes proposes that sound is equivalent to or has a relationship to sight um (laughs) s-i-g-h-t sorry so we mentioned talking wall from 2016 a moment ago so that's the piece in which you know there's just a, a gallery drywall in a museum gallery, and there's a little hole, and instead of looking through the hole, the the viewer, again, the word viewer, is encouraged to, or, or learns to stick their ear next to the hole to hear what's going on in the wall. Or air sculpture from 2013, which I mem- mentioned a moment ago, which is a dark room where you allow sound to create perception rather than sight. So, yeah, are you interested in the relationship between sound and sight and proposing an equivalency, maybe, or a relationship? Perhaps. Uh, (laughs) Again, I I agree to your assumptions on that, too. And there is definitely a a gap or a difference in, you know, because when we can see up to a a certain point where there is a wall, or uh, this is a, a Paulino Oliveros uh, quote that uh, you can hear much much further, right? If you if we all take now two minutes to close our eyes and just try to listen as far as we possibly can, we'll get much further than our eyes. Uh, I mean, or we'll maybe we'll see another layer of, of things. I think sound is more accurate uh, to. If you want to understand where you where you are, <laughs> but then again, I I started with the ears. Now I'm learning to see much more uh, than before. Somehow, life is taking me that way. Didn't didn't you incorporate something from that quote in an installation you did yes. for Ooh, a garden? You know it and... all. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. So it, it's a it's, it's a project Maya made earlier this year for a botanical garden in Jerusalem, right? Am yes. I getting this right? It was a commission for the botanical garden. So how and, did you uh, take that quote and use it, air quotes, in that work? Yeah, well, there, that that piece had two parts, and the first part happens at, in the entrance to the botanical oops to the botanical gardens. And uh, there's like this bush, and all of a sudden you hear my voice from the bush, and it invites you to. You know, to do this little moment, to take uh, two minutes and close your eyes and, and exercise this uh, deep listening 
first exercise of listening as far as you possibly can. And, uh, and then you just do that. And, and that's a little thing we can, we can all carry in our, in our purse and use. It's a beautiful uh, thing to do. We can do it anywhere, you know. It's uh, just two minutes and brings in quite a lot. So I, I just recorded that in, in several languages, Hebrew, Arabic, English, French. That's what I had, the ones I'm connected to. And people can hear it as they move through... They hear it right when they get to the garden. So it kind of uh, restarts your, the way you're listening to, your, to the space. It's a beautiful, massive garden that you, you can walk in for a long time. And then the second part happens somewhere else uh, in the trail. And you just sit on a bench and, and there is a, a sound piece that is inspired by the sounds of the place. And has some chapters and all that. <laughs> this was the last piece I wanted to ask you about anyway, because it's a work made to celebrate or mark the reopening of a public space in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. You know, because as the pandemic went along, we learned that it was safe to, more or less safe, to be outside with people. So a botanical garden was, mm -hmm. you know, like a great, great totally. benefit to us all in 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 in, in the middle of a pandemic. And so I think that, you know, maybe in 10 years and 20 years, you know, contemporary art historians will have a field day <laughs> examining and looking back at how artists thought about and engaged with the pandemic. And, and this work and this engagement in, in Jerusalem is an unusually clear example of something that's obviously about that and made to be experienced in the middle of the pandemic. Were yeah. you interested in doing something about the pandemic or doing a work that would best be received in the middle of this thing we're all experiencing? Well, again, I, I like your take on it. It wasn't something that crossed my mind back then, but it's what happened. It kind of resonates the sound of what was around. And this was the... Things get, kept getting postponed. All my, my concerts, all my shows, all the performances <laughs> and things, everything just was a very strange time. And, and this, this, kind, this little work I managed to somehow survive the, the situation. And, and yeah, and, and also kept bubbled from the, that need, exactly as you described it. Is, is it a work it. that will work in the same way in 10 years, or is it pretty <laughs> pandemic y? Yeah, I think it will work. I think it's uh, it's theirs to to stay. They they decided to start a collection, and that's the first piece in their in their new collection of oh, cool. site specific artworks in the botanical garden. So, yeah, hopefully it will play again, and then we'll see. There is a part where there is I'm relating to some renovations you hear from the hill uh, far away. You can see it's very far. Uh, you, you can see the. The, the building that's going on there. And, and I, I kind of recorded my answer to that. So that'll be interesting to hear when the building is completed, you know, without the, the, second, the other side of the duo. <laughs> Sound being physical again. Yes. <laughs> Maya Dunitz, thanks very much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. Experience Nasher Mixtape, a series of tracks or micro-exhibitions featuring the greatest hits and the newest works at the Nasher Sculpture Center. See works by Basquiat, 
Brancusi, Melvin Edwards, Miro, and more, including Judy Chicago's Rearrangeable Rainbow Blocks. The vibrant major work by Chicago celebrates the part women artists played in the legacy of minimalism. Exhibition closes on September 26th. More at nashersculpturecenter.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16th, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next, historian Jordana Mendelssohn joins me to discuss her essay, The Mild Manifesting of Pablo Picasso and Alexander Calder in Protest Ephemera and International Art Expositions During the Post-War, which is in the catalog for the exhibition Calder Picasso. Calder Picasso is now at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston through January 30th, 2022. Mendelssohn is the director of the King Juan Carlos I of Spain Center at New York University. The catalog is available from IndieBound and Amazon. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Jordana Mendelson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I think that the status that Picasso and Calder had in the post-war transatlantic art world is enormously unlike the role artists of a certain age and similar status play in today's more diverse and more decentered world, which is also a world with less of a dominant mainstream culture than the one in which they were working. If we're trying to understand the period you're writing about here in your catalog essay, how might we understand their mainstream fame and position? Because I think maybe we should establish that before we jump in. You know, one thing is to remember that in the period that we're talking about, which is really centered from the late 30s forward, Picasso and Calder were art world celebrities for, for what that meant at the time meaning that they had already had several monographic exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art, which was at that time saw itself and was regarded as a gold standard and taste arbiter for modern abstract art. They were artists who by this time were mature artists in, in, in kind of their style, in their reputations. They had really the full support of the art establishment. Also transatlantically had credentials as being among the most recognizable representatives of what was really promoted as an international style of abstraction. So I think to understand why they held the sway that they did in the post-war period, we have to remember that they won those credentials through really hard work prior to World War II, which is to say that they were very much the kind of carriers of the historic avant-garde into what was then the post-war present. And both of them had also garnered credentials early on through the broad use of what we could describe as international art networks. 
I think in that there is some resonance between kind of what we understand as contemporary art and the way that contemporary artists leverage networks and what was kind of the groundwork for that in the pre-war period. So in, in many ways, the stature that they had in the post-war period came from their broad utilization of print culture, of exhibition culture, and the kind of growing visibility of modern art in that transatlantic frame. So while, you know, Europe kind of suffered the tragedy of World War II, the United States was the home for artists in exile and actively, you know, drew on those reputations to build modern art in the United States, which was then sent back to Europe in the post-war. And that is where really Calder and Picasso are uniquely transatlantic in their leveraging of institutions, of galleries and reputations in a way that I think set themselves up to be legible on both sides of the Atlantic. It's a completely fascinating history. Also, unlike today, artists such as Picasso and Calder argued for their work as being purely creative, purely inventive, absent political or ideological position. I mean, imagine that in today's art world. So how did they express this disconnectedness, at least the disconnectedness of their work from then contemporary political and sociopolitical concerns? And how did how did that function? You know, that was really the question that I tried to explore in this essay, because from the research I had done on Calder and Picasso, but also Joan Miro, and, and often I write about them in a kind of triangulated way, since the three of them exhibited together at the 1937 Pavilion, the Spanish Pavilion in Paris, which was a very political exhibition. A World's Fair. In the World's Fair, at the Paris World's Fair. That's right. The Spanish government had built a pavilion for the fair. And at that point, we're talking about being in the middle of the Spanish Civil War. And this was a Republican pavilion that was meant to really shine a light on the defense of the Republic amidst the, the attack of, of the nationalist coup. And Calder was the only non-Spanish artist exhibited at this pavilion. And that pavilion, I think, really cemented for these artists the idea that in their actions and who they are, they could be political artists while still creating works of art that they perceived to be as independent aesthetically from political compromise, which I think today would feel like an untenable position to hold. But one of the things that I tried to explore in this essay were really kind of several ways that they understood this position. One was that they leveraged their use of, in the essay, what I describe as ephemera, that's to say their engagement in posters and lithographs and ephemeral work that would support political cause blatantly and actively, oftentimes used in fundraising campaigns, and what would have been the work that they exhibited in the gallery spaces of places like the Museum of Modern Art. So that for them, there was a certain siloing of the kind of work and labor that they would give to cause. And whether it's, you know, Picasso designing the Doves of Peace or Calder, you know, designing campaign posters for senators or presidential elections, that they saw that as kind of compartmentalized. And Calder, you know, isn't one of these artists that tends to, you know, verbalize a lot or write a lot. But but when he does, he's quite succinct. And, and one of the citations that I that I include in this essay is an interview that was made with Calder on the occasion of a march on Washington against the Vietnam War in 1965. And what's great about this interview is that we can hear Calder's own 
attempt to negotiate this position. And he he talks about, so I'm going to cite him literally. He says, those who want to want peace should manifest no matter how mildly. And I am a mild manifester. That is a very interesting concept to me. How are you a mild manifester? And it's something that is uniquely called or in kind of holding that ambiguity forward as as a position. But then he goes on to say, you know, in this interview, you know, to clarify, he he says, my work is completely abstract and there's nothing I can do about it. I laughed out loud at that. <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. Well, yeah, because for Calder, as I think for Picasso Miro, you know, their artwork is out of an internal process of aesthetic reflection, right? I mean, for them as abstract artists, there is constantly a, a kind of aesthetic problem to solve which doesn't mean that they in their personhood are apolitical or that they don't find ways of contributing art to political cause. But Calder really sees them as very different positions. And that fascinates me because what all three artists do have in common is a dedication to the labor of being an artist. That's to say that they had all three of them incredible work ethics. They saw themselves, I believe, as artists who inverted labor in the making of art. And yet when we've seen kind of footage of them and hear accounts of them in their art studios, they are totally absorbed in the art making process. So when you think about how they worked as artists, that what I think strikes us as as kind of an untenable, you know, how, how do you hold these two positions together was something that they kind of modeled their artistic practice after. You know, one thing is me going out to Washington to march and declare my political cause. And the other is the work that I do in the studio. And as you said, for contemporary artists today, I think that would be a very difficult position or separation of positions to uphold. But it was one that they they really fought to uphold throughout their you know, artistic lives. An observation and then a question. The quote you just read is in on a page in the catalog, which features on the facing page, a Calder lithograph that is figurative. <laughs> So, you know, there was something you could do about that. <laughs> yes, um, yes. That's interesting about that. As you said, that was, the, that was, you know, this lithograph that he designed, you know, against the Vietnam War. And, you know, Calder, you know, we forget, but some of the first works that he exhibited in the MoMA were figurative wood sculptures. There's an amazing exhibition right now at the MoMA where you can see this idea that Calder was kind of the the MoMA's artist in residence, if you will, almost. And I think we forget that Calder was a very able figurative artist in sculpture dimensions and when he wanted to in drawing and illustration. So so again, to your point, it's not that he couldn't, but it's like, well, really that, yeah, that lithograph was, was for a different purpose of representation and that was to create a response, right? To create a political response. You know, that wasn't an aesthetic exercise. You know, and Miro, too. Uh, Miro also designed a lithograph for sale uh, to benefit the Spanish Republic. That is a a much more legible, you know, piece of protest art than, um, you know, many of the other things that he was doing during the same period. And, And that's where I think, you know, you know, we are before artists who can ably move their artistic choices as they like. But then to your point, you know, Calder says, but in the studio, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm an abstract artist. And you're like, well, yeah, you can, because you, you got how to do it when you wanted to for a political cause. But I think Calder would have said that's different. You know, that that's that's a poster. That's a political work. Although for what it's worth, he signs it. Of course he signs it because yeah. it's by, of course he signs it. So does Miro. So does Picasso. You know, Picasso, you know, P- Picasso makes this wildly popular 
you know, designed for the doves of peace and is proud of the fact that it has currency among the public. And, you know, thinking about also kind of the respect that they garnered for making political art. Again, if I can, if I can indulge by reading another citation, you know, so folks criticize Picasso's Dove of Peace for being too popular. You know, like it's, it's, it's schlocky, it's illustration, it's representational, it's not challenging. And then apparently, you know, Picasso was really proud of the fact that this gained so much currency. And Ilya Ehrenberg, who, who you may recall, you know, was, was a Soviet writer, was one of these kind of all around Europe writers, kind of meeting artists and writing accounts. And he, you know, he recalled, and, and this I cite in, in, in the essay, he, he recalled hundreds of millions of people know and love Picasso only through the doves. The snobs sneer at those people. Picasso's detractors accused him of having sought an easy success. Picasso himself, far from being offended by the love of simple people for his peace dove, and for him, was infinitely touched by it. So, you know, you think that here, actually, when it has to do with political cause, they're pleased if their work can reach a mass audience, you know, which I don't think they would advocate for, you know, the sculpture that, you know, was posed at the MoMA or, or the work that was included in an international art fair. I mean, I think you know, there they would be pleased if the people went to view their abstract art and appreciated its difficulty. But that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about making work that is intentionally meant to arrive at the maximum number of people possible, because that has the aspiration of making political impact, right? So there, you know, taste is less interesting for them. You know, aesthetic principle is less interesting for them. Access, you know, and impact is, I think, what they're going for in the work that they do in these illustrations. Picasso. So given Picasso's relationship to Spain's Republican government, the government makes him an honorary director of the Prado, for example, and given Guernica, the painting Guernica, and and of course how Guernica was used to raise money for the government and for Spanish refugees, how could Picasso do all that, particularly the painting, and still claim neutrality, if you will? Well, I don't think any of these artists are claiming political neutrality. Then maybe aesthetic neutrality. You know, I think because they don't see the political as a science to abstract art, I don't think they're thinking about abstract artists carrying a political value because they've decided that those activities are siloed, right? So I think that's maybe where we bring our contemporary perspective Mm -hmm. in on their work. And I think historicizing also... You know, you started this conversation by asking about how do we understand these artists' status, you know, as transatlantic artists who are highly visible. And, you know, one of the arguments that I make about why and how these artists separate their abstract art and the art that they describe as being free from political cause from the work that they do, like illustrations or posters, is the kind of market inversion of value that for them to maintain impact and influence as, you know, lionized modern artists, their modern art has to communicate as valuable abstract art, right? Has to be recognized for its difference from the political sphere, right? And so it's a very interesting balance between wanting to uphold themselves as being politically immune in making their art such that it could be upheld within the context of places like the MoMA and these international arts exhibitions as being on the upper threshold of of excellence in abstract art. But conversely, 
it is that value as abstract artists that allows them to cash that reputation in when they're called upon to advocate for political cause, which I think is anathema to the way that we would understand the status of the artist today, right? We would question those credentials. Right? How, how can you argue for a political cause if your artwork doesn't show it in its form, right? Or at least engage with it. Yeah. And, and yet I think, you know, you know, in many ways, these are artists that saw themselves as giving to political cause. You know, you, you mentioned again the 37th Pavilion in Paris. Guernica is Picasso's most important historical painting, but also belies clear interpretation, given the amount of bibliography that has been given over trying to decipher it, right? So it, it's not that he created an easy work that is intelligible by all. It's also interesting to note that at the time, that painting received very little reception as a work of art. If you look at the the reception of the pavilion, especially in Spain, you can count less than, you know, on, on, on less than a hand, the number of references made in the Spanish press to Picasso's Guernica. The work that was still celebrated in Spain in the 1930s was the work from the Blue Period, you know, from his figurative work. So we also have to remember that, you know, historically, Guernica was sent around as a fundraising painting after the Civil War to raise funds for Spanish exiles. It was appropriated in other contexts as this symbol of modern art, but it was also hung as a political work. To, to You know, in many ways, it circulated like his lithographs. So I think historicizing not only the conditions in which these works were made, but also the way that they were received and described in the press is really helpful to try and, you know, decipher the difficulty that we have in reading what we perceive to be as a difference between their political act and their artistic act. One of the places to which Guernica is sent is is Brazil. And your essay builds to a couple of events in 1954. One of them is the Sao Paulo Biennial. What makes it such a point of artistic and political engagement? And how did Calder and Picasso respond or or engage in that place and time. It's really interesting to think about Calder and Picasso in Brazil for several reasons. One is that the São Paulo Biennial, the, the second one that we're talking about, was one that was very much supported by the Museum of Modern Art and was of great interest to the U.S. government because Brazil's elite was interested in leveraging modern art as a kind of symbol of status and international uh, regard. And so it's fascinating for me to think that their ambassadors in Brazil will be Calder and Picasso, which shouldn't surprise us because of the MoMA already kind of building their reputations, mm-hmm. <laughs> almost in, in, in expectation of them as being exported as representations of American art. But also within Brazil itself, Picasso and Calder had already established reputations because of the high regard that the Brazilian elite held them. And this goes back to, again, the pre-war kind of networks of the international avant-garde, that we think that these are post-war discoveries. But really, from the 1920s onward, there is a great kind of transatlantic conversation going on about modern art. And much of that conversation is generated from within Brazil and transported outside of Brazil into Europe. Many Brazilian artists and writers were traveling throughout Europe in the pre-war period. 
And many European artists were also moving, you know, across the Atlantic, not only in Brazil, but also Buenos Aires and Mexico. If we think about, you know, even Mexican artists like Diego Rivera was very much involved with the Parisian Cubist circles and had spent time in Spain. So so those kind of conversations among artists and across kind of cultural transatlantic elites, the foundation for that was before the war. What happens differently in the post-war period is that Cold War U.S. politics decides to enlist modern artists as part of these kind of cultural ambassadors. And they do it with the support of institutions like the Museum of Modern Art, which are forming their International Programs Committee to also be in the service of the idea of freedom and democracy as articulated through modern art. And that that is also fascinating in that it's not that Calder and Picasso stand alone in this endeavor, but are supported by the curators, the directors, and the statesmen who are using art as a kind of diplomatic bond. And, and, and Picasso and Calder aren't fighting against that either. It, it points to the balancing act that they were doing, really. It underlines it twice. <laughs> it, it underlines it. And also, I think, while they are well-regarded artists, I don't know if we should take for granted the role that financial precarity played still in the post-war period in the kinds of decisions that these artists that we now regard mm-hmm. as solid canonical masters were still living under you know, that their release for financial precarity was not something that was assured, you know, even into the post-war period. So I think it's it's easy for us to look back and be like, oh, but they were canonized and financially secure. But precarity was something that these artists lived with. Your essay wraps up in 1954 with the opening of a building for uh, UNESCO, a UN agency that was kind of held within it the promise of the United Nations itself. And Calder and Picasso um, are together again, you know, in object, if not in person. What did they make for the UNESCO building? And what does it tell us about their willingness to balance and engage? You know, it's interesting. I I don't spend a lot of time on the works themselves that were uh, made for the UNESCO headquarters. Instead, I really spend time thinking about how there's an irony in that commission and that it was probably their largest, important, most important public commission to date. It represented a kind of achievement in terms of the goals of, you know, freedom and peace and democracy. But their works were met with just lukewarm reception. Picasso's The Fall of Icarus was, you know, in many ways met with a kind of, you know, exhaustion, like, there goes Picasso again. I don't think the critics that looked at their work, even Calder's Spiral, you know, I think they were, in a way, works that were seen as played out, you know, to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Like, oh, there's another Picasso and Calder doing what Picasso and Calder do. And it's unclear how inspired the artists themselves were by the challenge of the commission, as I think might be expected for a site like that. There were also lots of layers of negotiation and extended conversations and lobbying in terms of the artists that were chosen and the works that would be placed and also where they would be placed on the site. If you look at the site and where the works are, they're, they're not necessarily placed in the most advantageous locations. So there's there's one is kind of where are Picasso and Calder at when these commissions are made, right? You know, and, and, and at that point, I think we are talking about artists who are making a lot of works 
for public commission? Where are the kind of motivating goals of peace and freedom for them? You know, I think the energy earlier in the in the 40s, in many ways, the politics of that project was more present for them. You know, when, like when I cited, you know, Calder bef- before kind of, you know, protesting actively or, you know, Picasso with his Doves of Peace. I think that you know, in many ways, when the UNESCO commission comes through, there's there's a, less of a sense of urgency, you know, than than he would have had, you know, in some of the earlier works, just slightly earlier. But one of the other ideas that I try and explore in this part of the essay is thinking about what is the cost of kind of compromise and cooperation in terms of artistic autonomy. And one thing is to have these mini retrospectives included in these international art expositions like in San Paolo or in Kassel. The other is to be celebrated and supported in the context of MoMA. You know, in many ways, those are more open spaces for artistic elaboration and interpretation. And the other is for your work to be planted at a site that is so overdetermined politically without necessarily the urgency that would have been rehearsed in 1937. Right. So in many ways, they're they're being called once again to join forces in a very overdetermined political site, but without that kind of urgency that the call came with in 1937. So it's hard for me. I mean, we can't read minds. Right. But we know there was a poor reception of the work that, you know, when we look at the work themselves, it seems to not display the same kind of complexity or problem that some of their other works display, but also the site itself presented its own challenges as being this sprawling kind of campus, right? Where in some regard, Calder and Picasso get lost among other, you know, monuments of modern abstract art. So it's hard to know, know why exactly it didn't all come together. But I think some, some, those are some of the reasons why it doesn't have the same kind of urgency or excitement that these other projects may have held for them. And, and maybe to this day, because on the UNESCO website, the Picasso picture looks like it was taken by a high schooler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, I just, I don't know if it's that mix of, you know, what we were saying about kind of cause, compromise, and location. It's really hard to say, but, but, but the only parallel I could make is, you know, the pavilion, and the pavilion in terms of scale and urgency was just a very different moment. I think all three artists, actually, Picasso, Calder, and Miro brought their A-game to the 37 pavilion, and I don't think that's the game that they brought to the UNESCO headquarters. I want to correct something I said a moment ago before wrapping up. I think I accidentally cited the UNESCO commission um, as being 1954. That was the year of the Sao Paulo biennial that we were talking about. The UNESCO commission was delivered in 57 and both Picasso and Calder finished that work, made that work in, in 58. Georgiana Mendelson, thanks very much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you today. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.